off if you want to head that way. Uh, if you want to stick with us, that'd be fine too. Uh, for the rest of you guys, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. Uh, always a wonderful thing to bring your Bible to church. Uh, you can read along in, in your text. And uh, if you happen to not have a Bible this morning, uh, the text will be up on the screen. So you can read along with us that way. Uh, we have been in the midst of a series called How-Tos for the Christian Life. Uh, very uh, grateful for John and for um, Larry and their willingness to come and uh, fill in for me. It's good to be back uh, with you guys, and, and it's good to be back with James as well. And so James chapter 4 is where we will be. Uh, James chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. I want to begin with a story uh, as you find your place in James chapter 4. Um, there was a father and a son, and they were having a, a leisurely conversation one evening after dinner. Uh, they were enjoying each, each other's uh, conversations, and the, the boy had an inquisitive question. He had been watching the news that night, and there were stories of different conflicts, different wars that were going on throughout the world. And so the little boy asked his dad, Dad, how do wars begin? Why, you know, where do wars start? And so the father paused a minute and he said, well, let me tell you. For example, let's, let's take World War I. Now, World War I got its start when the country of Germany invaded the country of Belgium. And the wife ha- happened to be over, uh, overhearing the conversation and she uh, kind of peeked her, her head in and, and inter- interrupted the, the, the dad. And she said, tell the boy the truth. Speak the truth. The war began because someone was, was murdered. And at that, the, the husband kind of drew up with an air and an aura of superiority, and he snapped back at his wife, who's answering the question, me or you? Well, needless to say, the wife didn't take that too kindly, and so as she walked off in a huff, she slammed the door to the kitchen, and once the dishes stopped rattling around in the cupboard, um, the father looked at the son, and the son looked at the father, and there was an awkward silence, to which uh, the silence was broken by the little boy who said, Daddy... You don't have to tell me anymore. I know now how wars begin. (laughs) And isn't that the truth? You know, I think we all know how wars and how conflict, more specifically, uh, begins. I think we know from experience that conflict, um, we learn early on that all conflict, uh, whether it be interpersonal conflict or conflict among nations, or even, as James is going to address in James chapter 4, conflict within the church. Conflict begins and ends with us, is what James is going to tell us. Uh, a famous pastor, Chuck Swindoll, down, down in Dallas, um, said it this way. If you want to join a church with no problems, don't. You'll ruin it. And he's exactly right. Uh, there are no churches without any problems because there are no churches without any people. And James is going to hit, in James chapter 4, essentially saying, what is the source of conflicts among you? Uh, What is the source of fightings within, specifically, the body of Christ? Now, what we're going to be talking about, uh, it's really a two-part series. We're going to have part one, uh, two-part sermon, that is. Part one today, part two next week. And I've entitled the sermon, How to Cure Conflicts. How to cure conflicts. And James begins to address this question. Actually, he has been beginning to address this question for about one chapter now. And what we see is that what is true today in churches, 
uh, in relationships, that there is conflict, uh, was true 2,000 years ago. I think we oftentimes have an idealistic view of the early church. And we think if we were just one of the first Christians, if we just went to uh, the very first apostolic church, literally apostolic, following the apostles, that it would be peachy and we would have no problems and everyone would get along and there wouldn't be any quarreling or fights. But the scripture itself tells us that that's simply not true. Uh, There was no and is no perfect church. And James is dealing with a group of churches here, as well as groups of churches here in our day, with the issue of conflict. What do we do about the conflict that almost inevitably arises in any church? What we're going to see is essentially part one. Uh, We're going to see two points. First of all, we're going to see the cause of conflict. And so James is going to tell us, what's the source? What's the root? James doesn't talk about the symptoms. He doesn't talk about reconciliation and how to do interpersonal stuff when there's fighting within the church. Scripture tells us how to do that. But James, the um, ultimate preacher, if you will, the brother of Jesus, is going to get down deep to the root of conflict. And so James, first of all, is going to see in verses 1 through 3 the cause of conflict. Second of all, what we're going to see this morning is the consequences of conflict. Specifically, what are the consequences of conflict in my life, in your life, in the life of the church as it relates to our relationship to God? Another way to say it is when we are selfish and when there is conflict, when we are a part of that, how does it affect Our relationship with God. And so we're going to see the cause of conflict. We're going to see the consequences of conflict. And then next Sunday, we're going to see the cure for conflict. James is going to give his prescription like a great doctor. This is how you uproot conflict. And so if you will, let's just read the first six verses together. Five verses, excuse me. And uh, we're going to read that together. And then we'll get into it. I will read from my text, and hopefully it will be on the screen as well. Uh, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask... And you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit That he has made to dwell in us. The reading of the word of God. So, James jumps right into it, verses 1 through 3, and he's going to spell out the cause of conflicts among among us. Uh, James begins uh, in verse 1 with what I would consider a very penetrating question. If you remember throughout the weeks, James is good at asking rhetorical questions, questions aimed at shooting an arrow right at the heart of the church. And this is another penetrating question. Verse 1, what causes what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's very apparent that James is dealing with churches here that were at war with one another. James is dealing with unhealthy churches. There are interpersonal fightings. There's conflict. There's dissension. And what I want us to see, first of all, 
is that James wants us to get to the root of the problem, the cause of the conflict. Because what he wants to do is he wants to put his gardening um, gloves on, if you will. He wants to get down on his hands and knees, and he wants to take this ugly weed of conflict in the church. And he wants to not only pluck the, the leaves off of it, he wants to get down deep into the roots and remove conflict in the church. Um, many of you know or if you don't know, you will, because uh, I'm going to tell you now. I'm not much of a gardener. Um, Shelly and I, uh, I think I could speak for my wife as well, that we really don't have the gift of a green thumb, if you will. And uh, we have never owned a home except for here. This was our first home. And so, uh, you know, I grew up doing chores and stuff like that. But apparently pulling weeds was really something I didn't do. Uh, I can remember I didn't do that. And so, uh, lo and behold, I, you know, checking out my... Uh, plants and I'm watering them because it's been so dry and you know that and there are a there are weeds, and so uh, I can remember uh, initially when I, I thought, man, that doesn't look like it's supposed to be there. It doesn't look like what I've planted. And so I, I would get down, and I would just kind of pluck it from the top, you know what I mean? I would just kind of take it off, and it wasn't there, um, but I would leave the root system there. I would leave what was underneath the ground, and lo and behold, I would look a week or two later, and there it is again. It pops back up, and I thought... Okay, this is not working. I need to do something else. And so what I needed to do, those of you who are gardeners, you have to get the root. If you want the weeds to go away, you have to get the root. And James here is not dealing with the conflict itself. He's not saying, you talk with so-and-so and you forgive so-and-so and I know there's this you know, faction. And he, he doesn't address the issues in the church, the symptoms. He wants to get at the root. He wants to, to show us and to show them what's at the very core. I mean, what really is the source of conflicts in the church? He says, what causes quarrels? This word quarrels, uh, you may have a different translation, was used in the New Testament. And in fact, most oftentimes in the New Testament, it is hand-to-hand combat. It's used of armies fighting one another. It's used of angels fighting demons. This word quarrels. And so James wants us to get a picture of what is going on and what can happen in the church. And that is, it's, it's all out war. James want us, wants us to know that when you walk into one of these churches, you're walking into a battlefield. You're walking into a battlefield. Spiritual grenades are being thrown. Emotional limbs are being lost. Verbal swords are being drawn. Members are being recruited by one side or the other. And the civilians, those who happen to be in the middle, those who are riding the fence, are getting caught in the crossfire. James says that this is not good. There is combat Going on, And so he asks the question, and then he answers it for them. I, I think he presumes that they should know, but he answers it nonetheless. Notice what he says in verse 1. Is it not this, i.e., you should know this is what it is. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? I'm emphasizing words for a reason. First of all, he says, it's your passions. Uh, your translation may say desires. Your translation may say lusts. Um, these are all good translations. The Greek word is uh, hedone, if you will. Hedone, which is where we get our word hedonism. Does anyone know what hedonism means? To be hedonistic essentially is a belief, it's a lifestyle, 
for which you pursue happiness, for which you pursue pleasure at all costs. And so a hedonistic person, a person who ascribes to hedonism, essentially says, I'm number one, I'm looking out for number one, it's all about what I want, what I feel, what I like, I am pursuing happiness. And I guarantee you that if you go in Cisna Park or anywhere else and you ask people, what do you, what do you want most in life? What do you want? I think most people will say, happiness. They want happiness. And James is saying, when you pursue, at the expense of others, self-centered happiness, pleasure-seeking, it causes all sorts of mess in the church. Brian Bell, Pastor Brian Bell, says it this way, the wars among us are caused by the war within us. You see that? What, what is the cause of quarrels? It's you, your passions, the passions that wage war within you. And so what that means, and this is really important, I want us to get this. Uh, this is true of interpersonal conflict, husband and wife, friend to friend, student to student, coworker to coworker, but it's also true Christian to Christian in the church. And that's what James is specifically talking about. And what he says is that the cause of conflicts in the church, in their church, in our church, in any church, is not external. Do you see that? It's not external. That is, it's not outside of yourself. Secondly, it is circumstantial. And what I mean by, I mean, it's not circumstantial, excuse me, it's not external, it's not outside of yourself, and it's not circumstantial. And what I mean by that is, it's not just circumstances, it's not just the event that happens, it's not just the person who wronged you, it is internal, it's internal. You can think of it this way, James says it's not circumstances, it's not other people's behavior, those things, external things, circumstantial things, may provoke Conflict. It may bring about, it may surface conflict, but it's not the cause of conflict. To illustrate what I'm trying to say, um, show of hands, and if you don't want to sh- share, that's okay. Uh, ha- has anyone here ever had the uh, displeasure of having shingles? Shingles? I have. Um, when I was in seminary, um, obviously I had chicken pox when I was little because that's where shingles comes from. It's, it's a re... Um, uh, reappearance, if you will, of, of chicken pox. And so I had chicken pox when I was little, and when I was in seminary, I got shingles. Um, shingles are very unpleasant, very, very painful, very, very itchy, not fun at all. But that's what, that's what shingles are. Uh, the cause of shingles, the root cause of shingles, is the virus, the chicken pox virus that forever lives in my system and in your system if you ever have chicken pox. But what provokes Shingles, what brings about shingles most typically is poor health, poor eating habits, or stress. And for me, when I was in seminary, well, it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> um, because I was not married, and so my eating habits weren't nearly as good as they are now, thanks to my lovely wife. And I was very, very, it was a very stressful time in my life. In fact, if you've noticed or not, um, right here. I have got a scar, and that is where shingles appear on me, right here. And I've got a scar from shingles. And the point that I want to make is, is this is what James is talking about as far as conflicts. Other things, things that external to us, circumstances, may provoke conflict within the body. But that's not the cause. The underlying cause, the underlying virus, he says, is our hedonism. It's our passions, it's our selfishness, it's our living for our Self. 
And so what that means is a board's decision on a matter. Maybe there's leadership in a church, in our church. A board's decision one way or another on a particular issue is not the root cause of conflict in the church. But it's people's unwillingness to listen and to follow being left out maybe of the information loop of a church unintentionally, that doesn't cause conflict. Maybe a hurt ego causes conflict. The fact that maybe you haven't heard your favorite song in a while, that doesn't cause conflict in a church. Your selfish view of worship, that causes conflict in a church. Maybe there's a change in, in a church. Maybe a ministry is being tweaked. It's being updated. We want to do the best that we can. Changes in certain ministries in the church does not cause conflict. It's people's unwillingness to change, unwillingness to let go of uh, control, those kind of things. Maybe someone's talking bad about you in the church. Someone is talking bad about you behind your back, and you come to know of that. That person's talking about you is not the cause of the conflict. It's their sinfulness, and you're unwilling to come to them, to seek reconciliation, to forgive them. That's what causes conflict. And so James very clearly says, if there is conflict in the church, you don't have to point your finger at any circumstance, at any event, at any person, other than the passions within you. That is what James is saying. He goes on to say then in verse 2, uh, the result of that, and he's kind of reiterating what he has said here. He says that our selfish passions, when they go unfulfilled, that is when we don't get our way, when we want something and it's, it's, it's driven by selfishness and hedonism, when, when it is not unfulfilled, when, it's, when it is unfulfilled, when we don't get our way, that is when conflict and hatred occurs. Notice what he says in verse 2. Your, you desire... And you do not have unfulfilled desires. So you murder, you covet, you want, and you cannot obtain unfulfilled preferences. So you fight and you quarrel. The same words he used in verse 1. James, I think here, uses the strongest of words to talk about the result of conflict in the church when we don't get our way. Notice the word. It should stand out. You desire and you do not have, so you do what? You murder. You murder. Some, uh, some Bible scholars think that this is literal murder, that in the church there was a circumstance to where somebody murdered someone. That's a possibility. <laughs> I tend to think that James, drawing from his roots and from his older brother, uh, Jesus, I think he's using this the way Jesus did. In Matthew 5, if you remember, Jesus said, if you hate your brother, if you, tell, if you say, you idiot to your brother, if you, uh, if you, if you insult your brother, it, Jesus essentially taught that's the same as murder. You're murdering them. And I think that that's what James is talking about. There's hatred, there's insult going on. And so when we don't get what we want, there is division. There is division. And so when a particular ministry, maybe our kids is in ministry and we don't get what we want, conflict can occur. Maybe our music is not the preference as what we would like. And so division happens. Maybe it's the frequency of communion or the mode of baptism that we don't like. Maybe the sermon topic just doesn't hit home with us. Maybe it's a Sunday school class that we're like, man, this is aimed for them and not at me. Maybe it's your life group. They're not bending to your schedule. They're not being as accommodating as you think. We can go on and on and on and on. But what James says is he says, look inward and realize that when your selfish desires are unfulfilled, conflict, war, murder occurs. He then goes on to say at the end of verse 2, notice what he says. 
<clears throat> you do not have because you do not ask. And James shifts here a little bit. He, he is talking about divisions and the source of conflict. And then he shifts to talking about prayer. Notice what he says. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so he begins to talk about prayer. Um, here's the connection. What James essentially is saying is that selfishness, hedonism, following your passions, thinking of yourself first, that in the realm of relationship within the church, it causes conflict, but it also rears its ugly head in your prayer life. You can also see it in the way that you pray. Notice what he says. He says there's a legitimate way to ask and to receive that which you desire. If your desires are holy and right and in the will of God, you pray. You ask God for it. Notice what he says. You do not have because you do not ask. I.e., there are things that you want, there are things that you desire, but you're not praying about it. You're not asking me for it. And then he says, but when you do, when you do pray, you're asking and you don't get it. And here's the reason why. Because you ask wrongly. Why? To spend it on your passions, your hedonism, your pleasure, the same word as in verse 2. And so what James is saying is that if there is selfishness within you and you are living a hedonistic lifestyle, it's going to cause conflict in the church. The one symptom, the barometer, if you will, of your prayer life will also indicate to you that you are ripe for causing strife in the church. If you find yourself praying for selfish motives and you're not receiving that what you're asking, I think he says... Watch out, because the same selfishness that causes fractions in the church is the same selfishness that is manifesting itself in your prayer life. I heard, heard on the internet, or saw, I guess would be an appropriate word, saw on the internet kind of a, um, an, interesting, an interesting story. Uh, there was a, a denomination, and I won't mention the denomination, but several years ago, they were having their annual conference. Uh, and I don't recall where it was, but they were having their annual denominational conference. And so it was a big deal. A lot of people were going, and they rented uh, this pretty large convention center in a major city, I presume. And so uh, there's this convention center, and they're going in, and as you walked into the convention center, the theme, if you will, of the convention for that year, flashing and scrolling on the marquee, was Jesus only. That was the theme of the conference this year, Jesus only. And the story goes on to say that after the first day, three of the letters, the first three letters, actually, the lights went out. And so when they entered the second day, what was scrolling on the denominational screen was us only. (laughs) And, you know, I thought about that and I said, you know what? That's kind of like our prayer life with our words and with our hearts to to some degree, uh, to a large degree. we, We say Jesus only. Jesus, we want what you want. We want what you desire. We want to follow you. But when the lights go out in the prayer life, in our prayer life, the lights go out and our motives are revealed. And what flashes across in our prayers is not Jesus only, but us only. And so James in 1 through 3 has talked about the cause of conflict. He essentially says, if you want to know what the root, the root of any conflict Husband to wife, brother to brother, friend to friend, family member to family member, church to church, within the church. He says it's your hedonism. It's you. Look inside of you. He then switches gears in verses 4 through 5. And he doesn't talk about the cause of conflicts, but he talks about the consequences of conflicts. Specifically, what does this do in our relationship to God? When we act this way, when we follow our pleasures, when we seek satisfaction apart from God at the expense of others, we want our way 
What does God think of that? How does that affect our relationship with God? Well, James tells us in verses 4 through 5. Let's just read this quickly together and then we'll kind of pick it, pick it apart. 4. <clears throat> you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose uh, that it says to no uh, purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And so he uh, shows us three consequences, three consequences in our relationship with God when we follow our passions, when we follow our hedonism, when we want our way. And the first consequence he shares with us in verse 4, and that is we become spiritual adulterers. We commit spiritual adultery. Just let that sink in just for a moment. Spiritual adultery. Um, The worst dreams, the worst nightmares that I have is when I wake up and in my dream, my wife has been unfaithful to me. That is the worst dream. The worst dream. I can ever think of. And I wake up and I'm panicked and I'm scared and I'm nervous and I'm hurt. Adultery. It's a horrible thing. Unfaithfulness. Taking love and affection and commitment away from where it should be and putting it to people or things where it shouldn't be. First, we commit spiritual adultery. Notice what he says. You adulterous people. I think if James was preaching, he'd be like pulling a Mark Driscoll here and yelling at us. I said, Shelly, can I yell? She says, yeah, you can if you want. I said, well, I'll say. (laughs) But I think James is yelling. I mean, this is like a sucker punch to the gut. This is harsh. I mean, James has been calling these people my brothers, my brothers and sisters. He has been kind and generous. He addresses them. But that's gone because he is upset. You adulterous people. This is taken from Old Testament imagery in the Old Testament. God's people, Israel, are called the Bride of Christ. Very similarly, the church, the New Testament people of God, is also called the Bride of Christ. Israel is called the Bride of God, and he is called the Husband of the Nation. And when the nation is unfaithful, when the nation goes and worships other things and desires other things besides God, harsh language is used. I'll throw out just a few. When God's people love other things, desire other things more than him, which is the definition of hedonism. Hedonism says, I am first. God says, no, I am first in your affections and thoughts and life. He calls them an adulterous generation. He calls them prostitutes. And even worse, he calls them a whore. Strong language the Bible uses when you and I, as God's people, live for ourselves Live for what we want. Put our our desires and our interests as number one. God says, you are sleeping around on me. And so I want to ask, is this you? Would this be pertinent to you? Are you a spiritual adulterer today? Um, I'm sure we all are to some degree. I can think of areas where I don't love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. I can think of areas that on that day and in that moment, I love more than I love God. And in that moment which over time becomes a lifestyle, we commit spiritual adultery on God. Secondly, not only do we commit spiritual adultery, but tough language. We become God's enemy. Notice what he says. We become God's 
enemy. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you become a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. It doesn't say God's your enemy. It says you are God's enemy. You become hostile to God. You declare war is kind of the image here on God. Very simply put, um, what James is trying to get across is that you can't ride the fence. He says you can't ride the fence. You can't have a divided heart. I don't know if you have seen um, this, uh, what I'm about to describe. When I was... Oh, several years ago, I have family in Texas, as you well know, and various cousins have gone to various universities. Uh, I went to a university in Texas, uh, Texas A&M, and several of my family members went to a university in Texas called Texas Tech. There's a bit of a rivalry there, and uh, we poke and prod and you know, just kind of have fun with one another. And for Christmas one year, my oldest cousin, who went to Texas Tech, got me this flag. And uh, the flag, if you can imagine, uh, is like this, and it's divided lengthwise, uh, kind of diagonally across. And on the top, there's an A&M logo or a tech logo. And on the bottom, there's the logo of the other school. And then on the bottom of the flag, it says, a house divided. Have you ever seen anything like that? Maybe Ohio State, Michigan, or, uh, I don't know, Purdue, Indiana, you know, that kind of thing. Chicago Cubs, St. Louis Cardinals, uh, that kind of stuff. They, they sell them out there. And, and it was a joke, and we had a good time, and I, you know, I flew it you know, just for a little bit. But as I was thinking about, that's the image that I think James is using here. He says, you know, while in a house and in a home and in a family, you know, I can love, I can have a bit of a divided heart. I can root for my cousin's team a little bit, you know. Not against us, of course, but, you know, we can have a bit of a divided home. We can, we can live together and coexist. But what James is saying is that, The house of your heart cannot be divided. He's saying the house of your heart. You can't have your heart looking like cut in half. Saying God and the world. Myself and God. You can't do that is what he's saying. There is no divided heart. There's no room for anyone else in your affections and in your thoughts and in your desires. I must be primary. And then you love other people out of your love for me. And he is saying... You can't do that. A.W. Tozer, great Christian writer, says it this way. He speaks to a generation of about 50 years ago, but he speaks prophetically to our generation. A whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. And so I want to know, what's the state of your heart this morning? Is it a divided heart? Are you God's enemy today because of what you're living for I pray that it's not. I pray we don't commit spiritual adultery, that we don't become God's enemy. And then third, we see that we arouse God's jealousy. The third consequence of our selfishness, of our hedonism, and this is a good thing, in a sense. We arouse God's jealousy. And when I say jealousy, we often have this notion in our mind that jealousy is a a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. God, he calls himself in the Old Testament jealous. He says, I am a jealous God. And it's good. There is a good sense, a healthy sense of jealousy for other people. Notice what 
he says in verse 5. Or do you suppose that it, uh, it is to no purpose that the scripture says? And here he's taking a compilation of, of the teachings of God's jealousy in the Old Testament, I believe. He yearns, speaking of God, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Your translation may be different. It may say that, that the Holy Spirit jealously learns, uh, yearns for us. This is a really hard verse to translate. It, it, it's hard to say which is which, but the point is really the same. The point, no matter how you translate it, is that God is jealous over our affections, over us. He wants all of us. He wants all of us. And so I want to give this illustration. If you're married, uh, this would make sense. If you're not married yet, it makes complete sense to you. Believe me, you will understand this. Um, What if one day your spouse comes to you and your spouse says to you, Honey, I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I'm committed to you. You know that I want to spend time with you. But here's the deal. There's this other person. There's this other guy. There's this other girl in my life. And, and, And really, I just want a day. Just one day. One day with them. And so Monday through Friday, through Saturday, excuse me, I'm yours. But on Sunday, on Sunday, I'm going to spend time with that person. I'm going to give my affections to that person. I'm going to share my thoughts with that person. I may even share my body with that person. That's okay, right? What do you, honey, just one day. <laughs> now that won't fly, will it? I don't, I don't think. That won't fly. Uh, wouldn't fly in my marriage, wouldn't fly in your marriage, likely. Um, as an aside, I was watching the news the other night and they had a special on and there was a lady who was coming up and was talking about how uh, controlled adultery in a relationship, how letting your spouse have an adulterous affair like once a year is healthy for your relationship. And I thought, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's, that's the scenario that I pointed out. Okay, for 364 days of the year, I want you. But, but on that last day of the year... I don't. But that's what we do with God sometimes. That's what we do with God. We say, God, you can have me this. But on the side, I want to live for myself. I want to pursue pleasure in this and that and the other. And we commit adultery. So we're going to wrap up here. I want to ask you this morning. Maybe you're here and uh, maybe you're not a believer in Jesus. Maybe... This doesn't quite sit well with you. You don't quite understand. Um, what, does it, what does it mean to have personal faith in Jesus Christ? Now, the Bible says that if you don't know Jesus personally, if you've not trusted in him personally, what the Bible says is that you are a slave to sin. And what that means is, is that you love sin, you do sin, uh, you don't have any option. What you do is sin. And this hedonism that James is talking about to these churches, and he's saying, Don't follow this. Don't live for yourself. Don't make yourself number one. It causes all sorts of problems. He can say that to the Christians because they have been born again. They have been made new. They have the spirit dwelling in them. They have a new heart that desires to live for God, that desires to love God, that desires to be utterly selfless like Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian this morning... There's a part of you, the redeemed part of you, that wants that, that desires that. Yes, there's the flesh that fights against that. But if you're not a believer this morning, you are a hedonist. You live for yourself. You can't live for God. You will not live for God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And think about your life. Does that characterize you? Are you always at the the top of your thoughts? What you want in that moment? What you want with your family? How your kids are going to affect you? How the church is going to serve you? 
Are you utterly self-centered? And maybe God is helping you realize that, good heavens, I may sit in church from time to time, but my life is lived for myself. This is me. And you're not redeemed. And you don't have anything welling up inside of you that says, God is the most lovely and glorious and beautiful thing. He is the most loving and amazing person. And I don't want to live for myself. My joy is in Him. And if that is not welling up in you, then maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Ask Him to change your heart through faith in His death and burial and resurrection. And so if that's you, you can do that right now. You can cry out to Jesus right now. You can come see me as, uh, as we sing this song. You can come see me afterwards. I invite you to do that. Getting back to the little boy that we began with. Um, we now know how wars begin, like he does. We don't have to be told anymore how wars begin. How conflict in the church and anywhere else begins. It begins with us, is what James has said. And so I want to leave us with this blessing. May we realize our part in conflicts. It's my prayer for myself and for you, that we realize our part in whatever conflict it may be, and that we would take radical steps, maybe apologizing to someone, maybe going and asking for forgiveness from someone. My prayer is that we may realize that our prayer life is the barometer of our selfishness. And I'm going to ask that we think and pray about what our motives is and what we're praying for. Does it show that we're ripe for strife? Third, may we realize that if our house, uh, the house of our heart is divided, it would no longer be. That we would remove the dividing line and the me and the world half would go away. And our flag would just say God on it. And I pray that we would realize as we get into next week, verse 6. Verse 6, James says this. But he gives a greater grace. But he gives more grace. The answer to our issues is that however bad our sin is, if we're an unbeliever or a believer, that God's grace can change us and can forgive us. And I want to leave us on that note. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Come on, guys.